You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Well, hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to a new episode. Just want to encourage you guys to check out the Facebook page, Instagram, and uh, like it, share it, and continue uh, to listen and support. Thank you so much. Uh, We will be coming up on a time where I'm going to be asking for money. (laughs) So, that awkward time. Um, between now and the middle of February, I would be asking for those of you that have been listening, that have been um, regular listeners and have benefited from this podcast in any way or enjoy it, uh, to give some money so we can go for another year. And there's plenty of more things to discuss and to go over in a year's time. Um, There's never anything to run out of material-wise when it's talking about the the Bible. All right? So, um, the link is in the description. Okay? The PayPal thingy, me, uh, that Kingdom Project podcast, PayPal thing, whatever it is. I don't know. Uh, so, uh, there was also some people that I know that donated, uh, at the start of this. Um, if you would like to consider that again, I encourage you to do so. Sow a seed, brother. Just sow a seed. All right. So let's see here. Here's, here's something that I think is, um, uh, you know, uh, new covenant, new covenant things. A lot of people, um, don't gr- I, you know a lot of people don't fully grasp the being made new, being made a new creation, being being in this new covenant of grace, um, and there's there's forgiveness and redemption. Uh, redemption goes with reconciliation, and th- they're two different things, but they go together. You know the Old Testament in. Uh, there was forgiveness. There was forgiveness of sin, but it was through sacrifices and a high priest. And But all it did was forgive you of your sin. And the guilt and the shame and all that still still remained. And the problem of the, the internal problem of sin was still there. These were types and shadows. Paul states this in, in um, many times. Uh, Romans is a lot about it. Galatians is about it. Um, bits and pieces. And, and the book of Hebrews is all about this. And saying these are just but a shadow. The substance. Jesus has come. Now with forgiveness, we're forgiven of the sins. But we're also redeemed and reconciled. What's this do? This makes us new. This places us in Christ. He gives us um, a share in the victory of sin and takes care of the sin problem, removes the, the shame and the guilt, and changes our identification uh, um, I, our identification of identifying with sin to our identification in being him and a beloved child of God. That, that is both forgiveness then and redemption and reconciliation to the Father. Now, a mixture of law and gospel has always been a problem. And in that is a lot of confusion and people not understanding their true identity and when people don't um, uh, truly understand their identity and their identification in Christ and Christ alone from faith and grace alone. 
the mixture of law and gospel causes burdensome weight and shame and guilt and has people getting saved over and over again many times at the at the altar (laughs) and not only that it keeps them in certain old testament or old covenant i should say keeps them in old covenant uh practices um paul talks about this about having you know nobody trying to uh, hold you to hold uh, hold against you that you're not keeping feasts and festivals and all that type of stuff. You know these Jewish festivals, and you still you hear it even in the in the, in the um, charismatic camp, and and that's a broad broad term I know, but a lot about the Jewish calendar, the festivals and the feasts and all of these things. So I want to talk about fasting. On this episode, uh, you've probably already noticed that because of the title and the description. But we want to discuss fasting. There's a lot of people that still fast, um, especially when Lent comes around, and people fast um, instead of fasting food, they face uh, fast uh, social media or TV or other sorts of things. And it's to them, it's more of it's um, just self-discipline and, you know, that type of fasting and trying to abstain from something in your life that is normal to dedicate that time more to God. Okay, yeah, I get that part. I understand that. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to call it fasting. We need to just admit that hey there's a lot of time spent on this or that or the other maybe i should cut that out and spend more time in the word more time in prayer worship etc okay so um so um but but fasting in the old covenant was something else we'll get into that so uh this is going to come from mark um and so at the beginning in chapter two or just a little bit in there, um, Matthew has this has a party. He's invited all of his friends. His friends are other tax collectors and these people called sinners. And Jesus goes to the party and this disturbed the religious leaders of the day. All right. So in Mark two. Verse 16, it says, when the, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? I'm reading from the NASB this time. Just switching it up from time to time. It's been helping me see some things. All right, so Jesus responds to the Pharisees. In verse 17, and hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right. Jesus was not saying that there were actually, there were actually were some who were so righteous that they didn't need his teaching. All right. Only that there were some who thought they were, all right? The Pharisees and the scribes thought they were very righteous. And you'll remember another text where he says, unless you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, right? It's because he was saying, hey, that was the example of righteousness. These people thought that they were that righteous. And all those around in the community knew, oh, look how righteous these guys were. So, um, I, I think it does mean uh, those who thought they were. He was pointing out that his words were for those who had a conscious need, all right? Uh, those who were aware that they were sick, all right? And the only, the only way to enter God's kingdom is to confess your unrighteousness and your inability to meet God's standards. That was the whole purpose of the law. So you... Uh, you must see your need before you can receive his grace, all right? You must realize you are sick before he can heal you. So the Pharisees 
They're upset because Jesus was with eating with these people. Um, but that wasn't all that upset them. They were also disturbed that he ate at all. In verse 18, John and John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so... For some, holiness meant avoiding eating with ungodly people. With others, holiness meant religious practices of self-discipline, like fasting. And the Greek word for fasting means to abstain from food. Okay, so in all three synoptic gospels, the question asked of Jesus about fasting and his reply appear immediately after the incident of the call of Matthew. And it seems right to conclude that the incident took place at the same time as the feast was taking place with, um, or which the tax collector had laid out. Okay. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So both groups of people fasted on occasions and they both found it difficult to accept a new movement within Israel that did not rely on fasting, but they gave in to moral and spiritual laxity by uh, its departure from the traditions of Judaism. Okay, so added to the Pharisees are the disciples of John the Baptist. All right, these would have been good men, uh, diligent about the cause that, that, that John was ordained for. But they were also men that were highly influenced by the religious structure of their day, and uh, of which fasting was a big part. Okay, so they they came and said to him, "All right, so who is this referring to?" All right, and if we look at Matthew's account, we see that it refers to the disciples of John the uh, John the Baptist all right so in uh, Matthew 9:14 then the disciples of John came to him uh, saying why do we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not so John the Baptist followers approached Jesus as he would be reclining at the table while the scribes and Pharisees stood outside not risking any chance at, at, at being that they could be contaminated—that was their train of thought. Um, now, this could have been a sincere question from John's disciples, or the Pharisees could have put John's disciples up to it to an, antagonize Jesus. Um, the Pharisees um, were like that, as we know. And they were also well known for fasting. And if you want to know how often they fasted, uh, you could look at um, look at the the well the Talmud and their traditions. And then, uh, but but we could see that also that in Luke chapter 18, 11, and twelve, it said the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people swindlers unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector here i fast twice a week i pay tithes of all that i get so it made sense for the disciples of john the fast all right um because his ministry stressed repentance so the question they're they are putting to jesus was why didn't he and his disciples do the same as the other spiritual men, all right? Um, <laughs> I think we do this ourselves. We could we could see ourselves here, right? If we see another Christian doing something that you don't do or would never do, sometimes that mentality is to question their relationship with God or their spirituality, all right? You know, well, I thought they were a Christian. They do this, they do that. Well, okay. It's a new covenant of grace. Extend some grace, okay? Well, um, the issue then here is fasting. Jesus and his and his disciples were having a feast with a bunch of sinners. And John's disciples and Pharisees, again, are fasting and hanging out with religious people. 
So complete opposite things going on here, all right? Now, um, there, there, there. Today, like I said, um, you may you may not hear much messages about fasting, but it's still a big topic. Um, there's a lot of books about it and stuff like that, all right. And all Christians have an opinion on it. Um, there are those who feel that fasting needs to be uh, bound upon all Christians as a matter of faith. It should be a part of the spiritual discipline or uh, spiritual relationship that we are in with the Father. Uh, there's people that have made rules and reasons for fasting and to, to try to control others in this exercise as well. Um, and then there's some that think it's unnecessary. So that's why we are covering this. Who is right? Right, it should be imperative that our view of fasting be biblical, even though this subject may could be touchy for some. All right, um, uh, I, you know, I think that we we should take it need to take a close look at what the Bible says about fasting, and uh, and but it needs to be made in the light of the new covenant and what we're freed of. All right, so um, the question then is when it's within the new covenant, those who would add fasting as this biblical discipline, the question would be, you know, is that backed up with scripture, right? For now, you know, if you're just, like I said, people will do this but maybe we shouldn't just call it fasting we should call it for what it really is is hey i'm not doing and i'm not you know i need to spend more time in the word and study and all that but i'm trying not to try not to sound legalistic there all right so <laughs> let me take a drink all right now the the Didache, okay, it was a manual church for um, of instruction from near the end of the first century, and it says, uh, "Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but do your fast on Wednesdays and Fridays." All right, so uh, in in other words, the early church sought to distance itself of the emptiness of fasting without losing the value of the practice all right um and you can look up quotes on this i mean the reformers had had much much to say and uh yeah you know uh, let's see martin luther of fasting i say this it is right to fast frequently in order to subdue and control the body for when the stomach is full the body does not surf serve for preaching for praying or studying or for doing anything else that is good under such circumstances god's word cannot remain but one should not fast with a view to meriting something by it as by a good work all right so um this should show you that that fasting has been valued and demanded throughout the church history um but but what do the scriptures actually say? All right, so I hope you realize that quite often um, there's a lot of teachers and preachers that teach things um, that are very different from what the Bible actually says. All right, um, now that doesn't mean they're wrong in everything that they say, but they should never be relied upon as the final authority. the The, the word of God is the final authority. Go to the Bible itself compare scripture with scripture do word studies examine the text seek to understand the culture okay and all that takes work but isn't the study of god's word worthy of our effort when it comes to that stuff all right it all comes down to how badly you really want to know the truth okay so um what does the Bible say about fasting then? Okay, so let's look at the Old Testament first and then then in the New. Um, fasting is a command in the Old Testament, and it was once a year. It was the only fast that was commanded under the law of Moses, and it was on the Day of Atonement. You can find this in Leviticus 
chapter 16, 29 through 31. And that says, And this shall be a permanent statue for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. And then it says, You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So even though the word fast is not used in this passage, we can see from other passages that humble your souls is a reference to fasting in the Old Testament. An example is Ezra chapter 8, 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Hava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all of our possessions. Okay, so the word humble here is the same Hebrew word as humble that in, was in Leviticus 16.29. And we see it from Isaiah that through fasting they were to humble themselves. Isaiah 58 verse 5 it says, is, is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a human to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? So fasting was an expression of humility before the Lord. Um there's a another the Hebrew word for fast means to cover over the mouth to fast. So throughout Scripture, fasting is referred to as the abstaining of food. The and again, the only fast day required by the law was on the Day of Atonement. Okay, so remember that it was a solemn time of remembering one's sins and the sins of the nation and looking to God for forgiveness. And the Day of Atonement was Israel's sixth instituted holy day. Uh, and it, it occurs in the autumn of the year. On the Hebrew calendar, it falls on the 10th day of uh, Tishri, I think, Tishra, Tishri. It's the seventh Hebrew month. And which roughly corresponds to September or October, right? So the Day of Atonement is the English equivalent for Yom Kippur. Kippur is uh, is from a Hebrew word meaning to cover. So therefore, the word atonement simply means a covering. It was on Yom Kippur that that an atonement, a covering, was made for the previous year's sins. This is the biblical concept of fasting, all right? The, the atonement or covering consisted of blood sacrifice of an innocent animal. So Yom Kippur was the most solemn day of the year for the people of Israel, all right? And it was often simply referred to as the day. It was the day that atonement was made for the priest and his family along with the community the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar. And it was a solemn day. The, the Day of Atonement was, was also known as the Great Fast or the Day of the Fast. And um, the Israelite who failed to devote himself to fasting and repenting on this day was to be cut off from his people in Leviticus 23-29. All right, so... Only once in the Old Testament is a fast commanded. So how about the new? And in light of what it all means, are believers commanded to fast in the New Testament? All right. And um, when I'm, although we're going to see a couple of instances, I'm really going to say, no, can't find it. All right. So the Pharisees had actually adapted the practice of fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. And this was 
a tradition, not a command. Uh, fasting in the first century was closely associated with mourning. All right, so um, what about Matthew? Uh, somebody, sometimes people say Jesus implied, uh, implied that believers should fast when Matthew six sixteen, because it says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Okay, so is, command, is Jesus commanding us to fast here? And I would say I don't really think so. I think that Jesus was teaching a group of people who commonly practiced fasting. It seems apparent in that text. And uh, the Pharisees and many Jews um, had as part of their week a fast. So although Jesus said, when you fast, he does not say you must. Jesus never commanded fasting. Uh, he did not say you shall fast. Uh, he said, when, when, when you fast. Now, we often, though, bring our life and our presuppositions to the text and go, oh, I do fast. So, And therefore, when someone's fasting and they're going on about it today and about how hungry they are and oh, blah, 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 and you're like, dude, you're not supposed to talk about it because he said, don't put on a gloomy face, okay? <laughs> so um, I've been there, done that before. So Jesus and the, and the New Testament do not command fasting, all right? But I would say that most Christian teachers believe that we should, or most Christians believe that we should, and they do, okay? Um, so, so what, what does Jesus teach us about fasting though in the text in Mark two? Okay. So remember the question that Jesus was asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. All right. Look at his answer 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Okay, so what does the initial reading of these verses tell us? You know, while the bridegroom is present, the attendants are not to fast. All right, so do, do you understand this text here? Do you see this? Um, w to understand this text, we need to know then who, who is the bridegroom and who are the attendants, right? Jesus, we should know it is, is the, the bridegroom, all right? Um, Jesus pictures uh, his, his presence, his parousia, his a coming as the arrival of the bridegroom. Jesus was pointing to himself as the the great bridegroom whose presence meant that men need not to fast, all right? And the great the great bridegroom's promised all throughout scriptures in Isaiah 62:5 um, says for as a young man marries a virgin so your sons will marry you and as the bridegroom rejoice, rejoices over the bride so your God will rejoice over you. Uh, so Isaiah points out that, that Israel has been called forsaken, their land desolate, but they will be renamed because God delights in them and their land will be married. He will be their bridegroom. Their God is the bridegroom and he restored people or his restored people are the bride. Okay, listen, listen to these words, all right? <laughs> restored, his restored people. Okay, so Jesus, by describing himself as the bridegroom of God's restored people, shows that he is uniquely standing in the place of God because he is God. So, Jesus is the bridegroom. Who are the attendants, right? The word attendants uh, means... Um, it's from a Greek word, and it means a son. We see the same Greek word used in Matthew 5, 9, when it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All right? So this word describes a position of dignity and honor. And when 
Jesus spoke of being called sons of God, he meant beyond affection to promising a privileged position, right? The attendants are the guests invited to the wedding. These are kingdom citizens. These are Christians, okay? So um, (laughs) there was no more happier of a time in in the ancient world than a wedding. just just they they did it differently than what we do okay uh, everyone went on the honeymoon even they 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 would have the wedding at the house of the groom the couple would stay there with the guest for a whole week the entire week of honeymooning the entire week would be a party time for the people who love the couple in a culture where life was hard and there was not very much celebration at all the wedding feast was one of the most joyous, uh, joyous, celebrative times in their lives. It was not a time of fasting. It was a time of rejoicing. Okay, so what Jesus is saying, yo, you, yo, no, he didn't say yo. He says, you know, when the bridegroom is in the middle of the party, you don't fast. You party. <laughs> You 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 are filled with joy. You celebrate. The rabbis told them that all religious rituals were suspended during the wedding feast. You don't stop on Monday and fast and Thursday and fast because this is a wedding feast. It's a time of celebration. So Jesus told them he is the bridegroom. And while he is at the wedding feast, it is not a time of fasting to act mournful. Um, at a wedding was unheard of. Uh, probably should be unheard of today as well because it's the time to celebrate. It's the time to, to get down and, and, and dance and have fun and celebrate. Um, but for us as Christians in this illustration, it's to celebrate and be joyous with and in the presence of Jesus. All right. So elsewhere then in the New Testament, this imagery of the wedding feast is heavily charged with overtones of the, the messianic banquet. Okay, so uh, Jesus uh, has this phraseology, okay, um, and, and here suggests that the behavior of his followers then anticipates the joy of that celebration yet to come. And for that reason, gloomy ritual behavior is in, inappropriate for them, all right? So, uh, verse 19, Jesus is saying that as long as he is present, it's not time to fast, but to rejoice. But in 20, he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Okay, so um, the bridegroom who, who was now here would would be taken away. Um, and uh, taken away is... is this in in the Greek, it's from the root word, which means, or, or it, which com, comes is used of death. Um, it's used as death in Acts eight thirty three. The same verb is used by Isaiah uh, when he's speaking of the Messiah, uh, Messiah in uh, chapter fifty three eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It's death, and as and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due jesus knew that he was called on to fulfill the ministry of the suffering or sir the surfery the surfer the suffering servant all right isaiah 53 is the suffering servant chapter and, and this is confirmed by John's words when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, so we have here the first indication of his awareness of the brutal end that was awaiting him. He knew that he would be suffering on behalf of his people, and then indeed his disciples would fast. So all of this is a reference to the cross. Now, Jesus at a later time spoke of the time immediately following his death 
or the crucifixion in terms of sorrow and uh, possibly then of fasting when he said to his disciples in John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Now, some say he's referring just to a several, um, the several days between his death and resurrection. They would fast just for those days. I would say that's unlikely for several, several reasons. One is that the early church fasted after the resurrection. Uh, you can see that in Acts 13, 1 and 3. Um, you, you can see a little bit and a couple other times, Acts 14, 23, 2 Corinthians 6, 5, and 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Now, the other suggestion is that Matthew 25, 1 through 13, Jesus pictures his um, parousia, the arrival of the bridegroom, all right? Uh, in other words, the bridegroom is taken away until um, his parousia. Now, some will refer to this as the second coming of Christ, which is a, obviously a great a, a time of great joy. But you have to ask this question. Is it all eschatological or something else? It depends on your view of pneumatology, which is... Um, uh, the the uh, <laughs> pneumatology, the study or theology of the Holy Spirit and spirits, and also depends on your view of eschatology. All right. So the question is: Is Jesus with us today or not? Right. It's not really. Are we still waiting for his this final end of time coming? But rather, has he come? I think both tie in a little bit together, but I think it ties into the eschatological view of the fullness of the new covenant, despite the differing views on the end times. If the all, the all if the second coming was the coming in, uh, in destruction on 70 AD or in, uh, of still yet future physical visible coming of Jesus. I think it's happening at Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the helper, um, the comforter, Christ inside of us. Has he come, you know, and also the fullness of the establishment of the new covenant that overlapped the old covenant for 40 years. And then the old covenant comes to an end in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay, so the, the Feast of the Day of Atonement was a time of fasting and mourning over sin. Now, if we take the, the actual biblical uh, description and meaning or definition of fasting, this is what it is. And when Jesus would pour out his, the Spirit, or when the, con, the, the fullness of the, 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 the Old Covenant coming the past and the new covenant being fully established um and let's just say salvation here sin is done away with it doesn't mean that we do not sin it means that our sin has been forgiven and in that forgiveness as i talked about earlier is redemption and reconciliation we have been given christ's righteousness so the feast following the Day of Atonement is the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures Christ's presence with his people. The feast was celebrated with great joy because of the joy associated with this feast. It became the most prominent of Israel's holidays. The point is that the fullness of the feast in the seventh month was experienced at the coming of Christ um, or the presence of Christ. And we see that with the Holy Spirit, but we also see it with the destruction of, of, the, of Jerusalem or the old covenant. So this was a time of great joy for all believers and believers, right? Christ 
is present with us. The bridegroom is here, and therefore we do not need to fast, I don't believe. Um, God divinely placed the Day of Atonement before the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called the Season of Our Joy. And the children of Israel and all believers in the Lord Jesus could only rejoice once they were redeemed and their sins were forgiven. Sounds a lot like the New Covenant to me. Jesus comes to fulfill the law, but he also has to fulfill all of, like, well, all of the law. All of the law would have all the feasts. If all the feasts are fulfilled, then these things are no longer <laughs> uh, part of the new covenant. Those things were, were, were fading away, soon to be obsolete, Hebrews says. Uh, therefore, there, we are made new. We're forgiven for our sins. We're redeemed. We're reconciled. We are made new creations. We're placed in Christ. And he is with us. So, when you think about that and you read through the language of the new covenant, you can't really make a case for new covenant fasting. It was to remember your sins, to mourn over your sins. We're freed from that. The sin problem is taken away when you're made new um, and all your sins are forgiven. All right. So um, sometimes when people fast a day, it's almost like they're trying to um, I, I, I don't want to see, seem mean about this, but it seems like they're trying to get a prayer answered or get something uh, accomplished. So they're uh, abstaining from food or whatever else and trying to, uh, it's like as if they need to twist God's arms to get an answer to get something from God. And that's a different view of fasting than what the Bible actually portrays. And so um, that's a misunderstanding in the first place. And then also we in Ephesians 2, it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavens. So what I see is a huge case made for a new covenant celebration because the bridegroom dwells within us. He is within us. Jesus referred to it as a, the abundant life. It's a celebration. It's a time of joy. It's righteousness, peace, and joy with the Holy Spirit and in the kingdom of God. And it's time to celebrate as new creations to celebrate Jesus. Now, you know, because some, some believers go through their Christian life more like a funeral than a wedding, a wedding feast. Um, everything's in, just so intense, so sober, so somber that it's more like a funeral. Sometimes we need to be reminded that this is actually a time for celebration and joy because the bridegroom is among us. So even in the most difficult struggles of life, there is still a place for peace and a place for joy because in those moments we remember what matters and what is eternal. We remember what lasts. And that it's an unshakable kingdom that no one can snatch us from the hands of Jesus. And then he even said no one can snatch us from the hand of God. So we're in both of their hands. And so what we have in Christ can never be taken away. Even in our deepest sorrows, we can still experience our greatest joys because the Holy Spirit, the bridegroom, is among us forever in Jesus. All right. So, our text in Mark suggests that Jesus saw fasting as being mainly uh, for the old covenant and the transition to the new, but not for the new. The old world fasted because they waited in penitence for God to act. But now, redemption has been accomplished. Therefore, fasting is a thing of the fast. So now is a time for rejoicing. So then Jesus brings together a couple of parables that would tie the whole text together. Um, and you get into some uh, a, con a conjunction in Mark's Greek. But these indicate that these two 
uh, expressions are intended to follow immediately upon Jesus' response about the bridegroom and members of the bridal party, the attendants. And in this context, these statements indicate um, uh, a continuance to observe rituals of the perishing world age and the new creation. So to understand these these proverbs in their context re- requires recognition of the the radical character of what belongs to this new age, all right? And what I mean by that, the new covenant age and its incompatibility with the institutions and observations of the old per- the, the perishing but now old covenant world age. Jesus and his followers belong to the new. They cannot be expected to pay homage to the institutions or observe the ritual practices of that which has perished. Um, the focus is sharply upon what is new in Mark 2.21. No one, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear results. So in those days, the clothes were made either from cotton or from wool, and both of these would shrink. So if you had an old robe with a big hole in it and you patched it up with a, with a piece of new cloth, then the next time you washed it, the patch would shrink and it would rip the robe, and then the result would be an even bigger hole than what you had to begin with. So if you wanted to patch an old robe, you patched it with an old patch. Um, the Greek word for patch um, is pleroma. And the Greek text says the new takes the pleroma of the old. So it's sort of a cryptic pronouncement of the destruction of the old covenant in the Jewish temple where the new destroys the old. So Jesus is sort of saying like, or is saying there's no way that the things which he is teaching can fit into the ritualistic systems of the Pharisees. His message of internal holiness and a repentance from sin is like a new patch being placed upon an old garment. It will tear apart the whole system of legalism. All right. So, Therefore, you cannot repair what is old by the application of what is new. And then the next one everyone's familiar with, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. All right, so new wine and old wineskins uh, were incompatible. It's inappropriate to put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskins are already stretched from the fermenting gas of the wine that it, it had already carried. And new wine would, would release fermenting gas that would burst an old wineskin, which was already stretched to its limit. And both the wine and the wineskins then would be lost. All right, So the kingdom's new wine was coming in. And it was coming into the old wineskin of the old covenant. The new wine replaces the old. And the word lost, when it says the wine is lost, means to destroy fully, to perish or lose. So the, the new covenant vitality could not be contained within the old covenant structures um, uh, of of a of the, of the people or a geographical land or a typological temple for you cannot put new wine into those old wineskins Th- this is exactly what Jesus meant by his ana- analogy here if the if the new is poured into the old the old will burst and it did it was destroyed in the newness of the spirit and it was poured into the present their their present evil age of the old covenant principalities and powers the old covenant was a shadow of things to come 
Jesus, the new covenant, is the substance. So under the old, the payment for sin was anticipated. Under the new, it is realized. Under the old, the sacrifices were provisional and reoccurring. Under the new, the sacrifice of Jesus is eternal and totally sufficient. Under the old, men's lambs could only cover sin, but under the new, the Lamb of God takes away sin. The gospel, that gospel, the gospel of Jesus is too weighty to fit into the old covenant framework. The gospel is not about what we do. It's all about what Christ has done for us. It's not about how righteous we are, but about the righteousness of Christ for us. The Pharisees listened to the words of Jesus through ears that could only think through their rigid forms. The gospel did not fit it because it is centered in Christ and his work, so they rejected it. All right, so the great, the central decisive act of salvation for us today is past because it's all happened. Jesus said it is finished. It's been accomplished, and on the basis of that past work of the bridegroom, nothing can ever be the same again. The wine is new, the blood is shed, the lamb is slain, the punishment of our sins is executed, the devil and death is defeated, and the bridegroom is risen, and um, his presence in us is here. He is with us. He is among us, and it's a time of joy uh, and, and, and not mourning and not remembering our sins. Therefore, it's not a time of fasting. It is not a discipline of the new covenant because our sins are forgiven, paid in full. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is with us. All right, there you go. I hope that gives you a better understanding um, and more of a revelation of your identification in Christ. If there's any questions, comments, disagreements, send them my way at the Kingdom Project Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, be a mustard seed, be leaven, and thank you for listening. <laughs>